This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. It's a pleasure to be here with Mark Feinberg in Montreal, Canada at the International AIDS Conference. And uh, it gives us an opportunity to talk about uh, his perspectives on the status of the AIDS response uh, around the world. Why don't we just start, Mark, by asking you, what do you think some of the most important trends have been in HIV treatment and prevention over the last couple of years? Well, I think there's been fortunately continued progress in innovation in the treatment and prevention space. I think there's continuing to be significant challenges, though, in terms of translating that scientific progress into public health impact. You know, we recognize that this is a long-term endeavor, um, probably to a greater extent than we ever did before, even though we always knew it would be. More recently, we knew it would be long-term, and I'm concerned that how do we think about ensuring that the innovations continue to be incentivized and that they can be actually translated into an impact on on saving and improving people's lives. Yeah, the UNAIDS issued its uh, most recent global AIDS update. And one of the concerning aspects of that report is that the number of new infections every year is still one and a half million, which is off track for the targets for 2030. There's still something like 650,000 people who die every year of AIDS, which again is, is off track. And in some countries, in some regions, infections and the challenge of the epidemic is going in the wrong direction. In Southern Africa, there have been encouraging decreases in the number of people who are infected and, and who are dying of AIDS. But in other parts of the world, you know, the epidemic's increasing, particularly in some population groups, young people, particularly uh, adolescent girls and young women and uh, men who have sex with men. There are many regions these are, are problematic. And I think what made me think of that is your point about how the advances we've seen in treatment haven't been translated into public health impact. So talk a little bit about why that is. What are some of the challenges in, in affecting that translation? You know, you, you cite the recent report from UNAIDS, and those data are you know, very concerning, obviously, the pandemic. The COVID pandemic had an important contribution to that, but I also think we need to look carefully at our, ourselves about how effectively we're executing the programs that we know are necessary to have an impact in decreasing new infections and, and, and turning the tide of the, pan, the AIDS pandemic. It's, it, it's one thing to set targets, but the targets don't you know, manifest themselves in terms of progress. Mm-hmm. You need programs to support them. And, and that requires continued prioritization, continued commitment, continued funding, but also, I think, really better models of partnerships that really are grounded in the reality of the circumstances where people live and they confront HIV or they're living with HIV and, and really thinking of new approaches and a more collaborative approach. And I, my concern is that 
priority for the AIDS response and investment in the AIDS response may wane, you know, given all the other challenges, you know, facing the world these days. And the only way we're going to not only maintain progress, but not further backslide and, and hopefully accelerate greater impact is, is not thinking of this as like an old pandemic, but thinking of it as something that requires continued innovation and like more effective partnership between sectors, more effective collaboration and really driving innovation the way that the HIV pandemic really transformed how we think about so many different things, whether it's how to develop treatments for mm-hmm. an infectious disease, the issue about equitable global access, as you know very well. Innovation there was you know, catalyzed by the tremendous inequities that were seen in the earlier days of the AIDS pandemic when treatment, effective treatment first became available and really powerful engagement of diverse sectors and new approaches were, were catalyzed. And I, I think we continue to need that today. And I think we can't just keep doing what we're doing. We need to sort of take stock of where we're at and realistically understand the challenges we face and plan for the future. I mean, I started working on HIV in 1984. When I started, it was a a brand new disease to speak of. It was a just discovered virus. And at that time, you know, I didn't project out into the future, like what the future course this was going to be. No one could have imagined that. But I think right now, there, there's no way that we can deny the fact that the world is going to be living with HIV for a very long time into the future, if not potentially for as long as the world mm-hmm. is around. And we need to plan for that. And I, I don't know that that is happening. And I think it's important to find the kind of nucleating factor that's going to bring together different stakeholders to align and bring new energy to this fight. Well, one of the things that uh, UNAIDS also reported is that the global financial resources for the fight against HIV have plateaued at about $21 billion, and that's about 8 to $9 billion short of their estimates for what the annual investment needs to be to stay ahead of the epidemic. So, I, I mean, that gets to the point you were making about, will this be sustainable and are we planning for a future in which HIV will still be around? And if we're going to have to depend on treatments, up until now it's been daily treatments, now we have some opportunity for long-acting treatments that will make it easier for people to maintain uh, or adhere to treatment and, and have long-term benefit. But still, if that's what Meet Over once called the treatment mortgage, you know that's going to require billions of dollars a year to continue to keep people on therapy. And now the latest estimate from UNAIDS is that roughly 28 million people around the world are on HIV treatment, but that still is 10 million short of the number of people who are living with HIV. You know, that just gets to the point you were making. Is this sustainable? Now, of course, now you're spending most of your time thinking and working on finding an HIV vaccine, which would help to prevent those infections in the first place. And if a successful, safe and effective vaccine is discovered and widely utilized, that might obviate the need for these continued massive investments in treatment. But tell us where things stand now in the search for an HIV vaccine. One infamous comment from the secretary of HHS more than 30 years ago that an HIV vaccine was about 10 years away. You know, but is it still uh, a few years out or what's your, your latest thinking? Because I, I doubt that there's anybody who's better positioned to give us a sense of what the landscape looks like now. I just want to you know, start by re-emphasizing some of the points you made. 
clearly the issue of how many people are infected. I think it's a remarkable accomplishment that as many people are receiving treatment as are receiving treatment today. That That's an amazing success that no one might have ever thought would have been possible. But when people have numbers like 28 million people on treatment, that's like a snapshot. It's a moment in time because the reality is, as you know, those people are going to need treatment for the rest of their lives. And you know, based on you know, 2021 numbers, a million and a half additional people became newly infected with HIV last year. And that means you're adding to the mortgage that you mm-hmm. said. It's not going down. It's, it's increasing. And you think about projecting that out into the future and thinking about all those people are going to need treatment for all of their lives. And unless we turn off the tap of new infections, we're never going to get ahead of this. We'll always be playing catch up and hoping that we're able to sustain the response. You know, sustaining the response, though, is facing challenges in the current world. I mean, as you know very well, you know, amazing innovations like PEPFAR grew out of a kind of bipartisan support that is hard to imagine happening mm. in you know, Washington these days. Organizations like the Global Fund, you know, an amazing innovation and important contributor to the AIDS response, grew out of a view where nations work together to take on global challenges. And, and that, too, has become a much more fragmented reality. So we need to do better in prevention, and prevention have certain biomedical science elements that I know and focus much of my career on, but it also has all kinds of community and individual engagement and, and policy and public health elements too, and all of those need to work together. And when we think about decreasing the numbers of new infections each year, it's not just a vaccine. I mean, a vaccine is, to my mind, the only solution that will ever give us any hope of actually ending this pandemic. And if we don't have a vaccine, it's hard to imagine how that's going to happen. And then that means you're stuck with sustaining the response if you don't have an effective vaccine. But Mm -hmm. turning the tide on the number of new infections is not just going to depend on a vaccine. It's going to require and making sure that everyone who is infected can get access to treatment and has the ability to take treatment on a regular basis in a successful manner, because we all know that treatment is prevention. Mm -hmm. We need new opportunities for prevention, including, you know, there's promising results in long-acting antiretroviral drugs, but we'll just have to see whether it's actually going to be possible to implement those in a sustainable way. I mean, they're very attractive from a, a scientific point of view, but from a practical point of view, can we actually do that? Can we make sure that people can access it? You know, everyone who's at risk, you know, before they're exposed, that's a big undertaking. And it's not just the thing that's in the bottle or in the tablet that's going to determine that. It's the systems in place to deliver it effectively and engaging the communities at risk in a, in a way that is effective. So all those things are critical. I and mean, I think there are new innovations beyond long-acting antiretroviral drugs, including broadly neutralizing antibodies, which you know mm-hmm. have a proof of principle now that if you have a sufficient you know, tighter of the antibodies in your bloodstream and you are confronting susceptible viruses, you can prevent people from getting infected, which is 
a very important recent result from the so-called AMP trial, the antibody-mediated prevention trial done by the um, HVTN and the HPTN from the NIH-funded networks, which is a very important finding because it not only suggests that broadly neutralizing antibodies might be a effective addition to the prevention armamentarium, but it also really for the first time gives us a very clear target about what to go after in terms of an HIV vaccine. Um, the, the if efforts to date have not been successful in terms of finding an efficacious HIV vaccine, and one by one we've seen so many efficacy trials of HIV vaccine candidates fail. Um, but those were candidates that were not targeting immune responses that can be clearly measured and clearly associated with protection. They were always inferred. Um, you know, I, mean, I think there's a rationale for doing the work that was done, but it's not the kind of strong scientific foundation you have now about knowing what kind of immune response to target by a vaccine. Not only do we now understand that very clearly, but there's been really amazingly creative and effective insights made into the underlying science of how broadly neutralizing antibodies are developing in the small proportion of people who are naturally infected with HIV who make them. But there's actually a very clear scientific foundation now to think about how to elicit those antibodies by vaccination, hopefully in a significant majority of vaccinated people. That is a tremendously challenging goal to achieve, but for the first time, the target we need to go after is very clear, and the path to get there is not only much clearer than it's ever been before, but we actually have the tools now to know whether we're on that path or whether we're straying off that path, and we have the ability now to know even in first in human phase one clinical trials, whether we're on the right path or not. We don't have to wait to do a 30,000 volunteer efficacy trial to only find out that the vaccine didn't work. Then we should be able to identify promising approaches much earlier in the development process now and discard less promising ones sooner. So I think the HIV vaccine field is at a very exciting time. The science is amazing. I think the people are collaborating in very positive and effective ways. But that being said, you know, around your question about when will we have an HIV vaccine, I'm not going to put a date on it because to be honest with you, I really don't know. I think what we have the opportunity to do now, though, is to not have only have a clearer path, but we have the tools to move more quickly and I think if you ask me that same question a couple of years from now, I might actually be able to give you mm -hmm. a guesstimate of when it is. But um, right now, we just don't know. And I don't think it's actually helpful to make ill-informed guesses that people will come back and quote me in the future saying, Mark Feinberg said, we'll have a vaccine <laughs> in five years when it's 50 years down the line. Yeah, well... Um, you know, and I, I don't want you to go out on a limb like that, but let me ask you, this may be a, a naive question, but it just occurs to me and our listeners would probably find your answer illuminating as well. You know, when you contrast where things stand with 
research into an HIV vaccine. And you just gave us a very succinct and clear explanation of, of where things stand now and, and why there's cause for optimism. But contrast that with Ebola, which you know hit the world in the, the outbreak in West Africa in 2014, 2015. Within a couple of years, I, I mean, you were involved in the work that Merck and Co. did on, on a successful Ebola vaccine. There was a J&J vaccine and other work as well. But within a couple of years, there was an Ebola vaccine that worked. With COVID-19, the genome was published early on, and within a year of that, essentially a year, you had Pfizer and Moderna with new vaccines in the field, and J&J came along soon after that, and AstraZeneca and a number of others. Why is it that it was possible for those infectious diseases to come up with effective vaccines in development terms almost overnight, and there's still this challenge with, with HIV? You know, I think you alluded to that when it comes down to what are the, I think the technical term is correlates of immunity, and you alluded to that. Is that the only reason, or are there other aspects of the differences between Ebola, COVID, and HIV? And then secondly, is an mRNA approach something that looks promising for an HIV vaccine, since that was so successful recently yeah. with COVID-19? Well, I think it's important that you're raising the question because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of this issue. People see how quickly the COVID vaccines were developed, or you bring up the case of Ebola, which also was, you know, once it actually entered clinical testing, generated efficacy results in a startlingly short period of time, which was, you know, set the world speed record before the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines beat it. And, and the answer is just one word, biology. HIV is the most difficult target virus that medical science has ever gone after in terms of trying to develop a vaccine. However horrible the COVID-19 pandemic is, it would have been much more horrible if SARS-CoV-2 was a more difficult virus to make a vaccine against. It turns out that SARS-CoV-2 is actually a pretty easy target to make a vaccine against. And almost everything about SARS-CoV-2 that makes it an easy target is essentially the exact opposite with respect to HIV. So people talk about variants of concern with respect to SARS-CoV-2, and that's a big problem now. The genetic diversity of HIV puts SARS-CoV-2 to shame. It is a much more genetically diverse virus, and because it causes a persistent infection in almost everybody except these occasional cases that are now being reported of people who one way or another were cured or cleared their mm. infection. You know, it's a chronic infection and the virus is constantly diversifying. It's constantly changing. It is a moving target every day in every single infected person. It's diversifying extensively. The HIV envelope glycoprotein, which is the equivalent of the SARS-CoV-2 spike, you know, mm. now in common parlance, the HIV envelope glycoprotein shields all of its vulnerable domains that would be the target of protective antibody responses, whereas the SARS-CoV-2 spike basically sticks them out there for the immune system to see and respond to. And if you vaccinate someone with the SARS-CoV-2 spike, the body is placed to rapidly make neutralizing antibodies that can block infection with that virus, whereas if you do the exact same thing with an HIV envelope like a protein trimer, you do not elicit neutralizing antibody hmm. responses. And you have to find the path by you know, walking the immune system down the pathway from the naive B-cell precursors that we all inherit to basically find a way to activate them to walk down the path of making 
broadly neutralizing antibodies. This happens naturally in a small percentage, probably about 2% or so of HIV-infected people. So it's a rare event, and it mm-hmm. takes years in those people to develop. But we have to figure out how to do that by vaccination, whereas with COVID vaccines, you inject someone with the vaccine, and within a couple of weeks, they're making neutralizing antibodies. Mm-hmm. It's like the HIV virus is very difficult for the immune system to see and effectively respond to, whereas the SARS-CoV-2 virus is much easier for the immune system to respond to. So, you know, in, with Ebola, we don't have the same detailed understanding of what the correlates of protection are, but we know that a number, or Vivo, the Merck, you know, VSV, Ebola, Zaire vaccine, is highly efficacious with a rapid onset of immunity within about a week of vaccination. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, a great vaccine in a lot of ways. We don't fully understand how it works, but it, it works incredibly well. And, and that's totally different from HIV. So I can understand why people look at the timelines for these different vaccines and, and ask, well, why is it taking people so long to develop an HIV mm-hmm. vaccine? Um, and, and the second question you asked about RNA, you know, technologies for you know, vaccine development, which were really validated for the first time in the COVID nineteen vaccine development effort. You know, we still these are still very early days, and we'll have to see the range of other infectious disease pathogens that can be amenable to mm-hmm. developing efficacious vaccines with RNA mediated delivery of the antigens. We don't expect that there's anything magical about RNA mm-hmm. for applying it to an HIV vaccine, which is something we and a number of others are actively pursuing. We don't think that that's going to solve the problem, but what that will do, we hope, is it'll allow us to move much more quickly. So when I was you know, talking earlier about getting first proof of principle that broadly neutralizing antibodies, you know, antibodies that are able to neutralize genetically diverse viral variants can protect people from HIV infection, the so-called AM study result. Another really important result was the so-called IAVI G001 study, which is the first study of its kind to actually test the idea that can we initiate the process of making broadly neutralizing antibodies by vaccination, not to say can we make broadly neutralizing antibodies by vaccination, but can we at least activate the naive B-cell repertoire, which is what you need to activate if you're going to initiate an immune response against vaccine, can we activate them in a way that can get them to the first step of making broadly neutralizing antibodies? Because we now understand those pathways very well mm-hmm. by studying how those antibodies develop in HIV-infected people, and we're trying to recapitulate that with vaccination. So the IOVG001 study, a so-called germline targeting immunogen, which was specifically designed to elicit or initiate the process of eliciting a broadly neutralizing antibody response, that study yielded incredibly encouraging results. So that was a very important validation. But that idea was you know, a decade in the making before that clinical trial mm-hmm. started. But even once the immunogen had been designed by our, our colleagues at the IAVI Neutralizing Antibody Center in Scripps Research um, in La Jolla, California, once they knew what they thought the right immunogen would be, it took about three years to take that immunogen and manufacture it so that it could be used in clinical trials. So we did that. The clinical trial took about a year and a half, two years to do. 
and it got a very positive answer. But we know that one step of the way isn't all the way, and we need to walk the immune system down that full path, mm-hmm. which is going to require multiple different immunizations, probably with different vaccine immunogens. And we also know that one specificity is not going to be enough. So this was targeting the so-called CD4 binding site, which is the part of the envelope, like a protein that binds to the CD4 molecule on T cells and is essential to initiate the process of infection. But we know that we're going to have to target at least three different epitopes on the envelope-like protein to deal with the genetic diversity of the virus. So not only do we need to do multiple immunizations to get a broadly neutralizing antibody against one specific epitope, we're going to need to do that with probably multiple different epitopes. So if you think about how long it's going to take you to go from the idea into a clinical trial when you're doing traditional methodologies, mm-hmm. it'll be a very long time before we actually have the information. We can't wait that long for all the reasons we've already talked about. What the RNA technology allows us to do is go much more quickly. So what took three years now can take about three months. Yeah. And so the idea now is that we are in a position not only to have this really very robust fervor in terms of generating ideas in the lab about how to go after these challenging targets. But we now have hopefully tools that will allow us to move more quickly and take things quickly into the clinic, know whether they're working or not, advance the promising ones and kill the unpromising ones. And that if we can validate that the RNA platform can elicit the same immune responses or elicit immune responses as effectively as the recombinant proteins, that will be a very significant accelerant of HIV vaccine progress. And the first studies are trying to replicate the so-called IAVG002 study that's Mm -hmm. now underway, a collaboration between Moderna and IAVG and Scripps, as well as, you know, the Gates Foundation and, and others and other studies, including a similar study, IOBG003, which is taking place in Africa, which is very important to not only do the work there, but do the analyses there and have you know, African scientists leading that effort. But there's also an additional study being done by the HVTN looking at an additional component developed by the same you know, collaborative team. We'll have the readout of those studies, I think, within a year. And at least the first information will be very important is answering the question about can RNA delivery match or exceed the responses elicited by recombinant proteins? Mm-hmm. The answer to that is yes. That's going to be a really important result. This is all fascinating, Mark, and, it, and it's encouraging, too, to, to hear the scientific advances that you've been making along this path to toward an HIV vaccine. About 100 questions occur to me, but let me just ask... Two, one is how sustainable is is this effort going to be, given that donor funding for HIV research and HIV treatment and and prevention efforts has been stalling over the last few years? Are you finding that the excitement that you and your scientific colleagues have at these new findings is matched by the people who are going to have to support this research until you get to an effective vaccine? Well, I mean, that's obviously a concern. You know, we're very fortunate in, in many ways, that the HIV vaccine effort is still well-funded. I, mean, I think probably additional funding could be beneficial, but I don't see funding being as the major rate-limiting step. I think mm-hmm. the science is the major rate-limiting step. 
you know, but there are concerns about that. So far and away, the biggest funders of HIV vaccine research are in the United States. You know, the NIH is mm-hmm. significantly the leader, and the Gates Foundation is another, you know, major supporter of innovative work. But those two organizations account for the vast majority of HIV vaccine research funding. It's not the kind of global endeavor that it really needs to be. And I think there are a lot of reasons why the NIH and the Gates Foundation are strong supporters. I think you know one of them is the fact that you know Tony Fauci has been such a champion of HIV vaccine research. And that kind of leadership needs to be sustained. And I I don't know what the future holds when there are not people like Tony who are as strong and vocal champions of HIV vaccine research. So that's that's a concern. I mean the other element of sustainability that I you know worry about and I don't want to sound negative about it, but I am concerned about it is when I started working on this in nineteen eighty four, I was like a a very young scientist and HIV just came out of nowhere and it was far and away not only so important from a public health and societal and like personal level, mm-hmm. but it was also scientifically the most exciting thing that you know a young biomedical scientist could work on. I mean, always for a whole cadre, a whole generation of people, many of them or at this conference, and now I have gray hair like I do. <laughs> or no hair like me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are other exciting things in science, mm-hmm. too. And I'm sure that the COVID pandemic has, you know, activated the interest of uh, the current generation of young scientists. And I, I think the ability to apply really cutting-edge science to address a very pressing public health threat is very gratifying to a, a whole cadre of mm-hmm. people, not, not everyone in science, but a lot of people, and, and those people often you know, generate amazing results. And what I wonder about is whether HIV will still be attractive to future generations of young scientists when it's not, it's not a new disease any longer, mm-hmm. but it's going to be like will it fade into the background? And that's not just a scientific question. I mean, it goes back to your earlier question about sustaining the momentum. I mean, you know, one of the unfortunate things about human nature is the longer you're exposed to a difficult stimulus, the more you tend to put it out of your mind. (laughs) And that could happen with HIV. It certainly happened with tuberculosis, for example. I mean, TB is a major threat that gets next to zero investment Mm -hmm. and next to zero attention, which is like, try to explain that on any sort of rational basis. I mean, it's the same thing that happened to HIV. I certainly hope not. I mean, one kind of important factor is that the science being done in a pursuit of an HIV vaccine is the cutting edge of vaccine science. Mm -hmm. And we talked about COVID vaccines before. The COVID vaccines would not have been developed as quickly as they were if it had not been the prior investments made in HIV vaccine Mm -hmm. research and the progress, not only in thinking about structural biology and computational biology and the tools needed to do that, but understanding how the immune system in human beings works and how to monitor it and how to modify Mm -hmm. immune responses. That was really catalyzed by 
investments in HIV vaccine research and the emerging progress that grew out of those investments. And not only that, but the, the partnerships that made things like Operation Warp Speed, foundation of those have been laid in the HIV vaccine field. If they had to be created from scratch, it would have taken much longer. Mm-hmm. So I think that without question, HIV vaccine research made the COVID vaccines possible much more quickly than would have otherwise been the case. They will hopefully make improved COVID vaccines available sooner. And now I hope that we'll learn from COVID things that we can apply to the HIV Mm -hmm. vaccine effort. And your question about, you know, the RNA vaccine technology is an example, because if it hadn't been for COVID, it was not clear exactly when the RNA platform would have been validated. I mean, there's been a lot of work going on with other diseases like flu and various other diseases, but the energy behind those is not as great as the COVID vaccine response attracted. So it was validated for SARS-CoV-2, and hopefully we can show that it's relevant for accelerating HIV vaccine development. So in that way, COVID is returning the favor, if you will, to the HIV effort. You know, you said before in our in our discussion that the answer to why there isn't an HIV vaccine yet is biology. And the other things you've spelled out quite clearly show that doing biology well is hard. I mean, it's not that you and many others who uh, have put a lot of brain power behind these questions are, are not working as hard as you can. It's as you said, uh, understanding these fundamental questions about how the human immune system works, you know, are elusive. And HIV is a wily adversary, as you, you pointed out. So it sounds like there's going to be plenty of work still to do. It sounds uh, to me, from what you've been saying, that there are exciting developments on the horizon, given where this area of research is. What I'd like to do is come back and check in with you again in a year or so and see where we are. No, I'd be happy to do that. I mean, I, I think it's important for, I mean, obviously the listeners of your podcast are people who care about these issues and want to learn more about them, but people don't necessarily have opportunities, have visibility into the progress that's being made. And, I, and I'm not going to overstate that the progress, that my enthusiasm for the progress means we're going to have a vaccine you know, next year or five years from now. But I do want people to be aware that really impressive progress is being made, new models of collaborative science to go after difficult questions is being advanced. And so a lot of really good stuff is happening, and I think it's important for people to know about that. Yeah, well, and, and you've outlined that for us very clearly. So I've really uh, learned a lot from uh, our conversation, and I, I look forward to talking to you again about these issues. So thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, John. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 